So if you're uh, new here, if you haven't been in a little while, we are going through God's Word in the book of Acts. Uh, the, the primary purpose for that was because we spent most of our life as a church in the first two years in the Gospel of John. So that's the life and ministry of Christ, God with us, Emmanuel, God veiled in flesh, and he chose his disciples, he did miracles, he performed signs, he preached sermons, he went to Jerusalem, he went to the cross at the hands of the Jews and the Romans, and then he went up to heaven, and he left the duty of the church in the hands of his apostles, and then he also sent the Holy Spirit, and Often, I think sometimes churches get caught not really knowing what do we do in light of Jesus' life. And I think the book of Acts is the bridge for that gap. It's, it's what tells us what the significance of Christ's life is to the local church once Jesus goes into heaven and sends the Holy Spirit. So right now, uh, the, the apostles have already received the Holy Spirit. The church has been filled with the Holy Spirit and there's been a lot of ministry going on and a lot of revival, spiritual revival, conversions, new Christians. And this is all happening right in Jerusalem. Jesus promised and later in scripture, God promised rather that the Messiah would come first to Israel. God fulfilled that promise. He sent Christ to his people in Israel. The church was born there. And right now the book of Acts is focused on the church that exists in the city of Jerusalem. So that's where we're at contextually. Now, the mission had been continuing according to what Jesus had left for them to do. And so the, here's a very quick synopsis of Acts 1 to 5. Spirit comes, preaching, salvation, healing, preaching, salvation, persecution, preaching, salvation. Something like that. So you'll see in there, there's a lot of preaching and there's a lot of salvation. Salvation meaning people understood the word, they understood the claim of Christ, that he was Lord and Savior that the apostles were teaching. They believed that. They surrendered themselves to Christ and his authority, even though he wasn't there bodily. His ministry was there and present. And they repented of the sin of which they were previously guilty knowing that the message of the cross was a message of repentance to enter the kingdom. <clears throat> so this passage, where we come to now, is in some ways very unremarkable. There's no healing. Uh, there is no miracle. There is no uh, great confrontation. There is no room shaking, like we saw last week. It's very plain and ordinary. It's an inside look at life inside the church. Life inside the church involving problems, complaints, but also solutions and blessings to the church. <clears throat> this passage, I think to me, there's, a, there's so many ways you could look at it and, and different uh, pieces you could pull out. You could preach a number of sermons on this because there are kind of two parallel tracks happening in this one passage. But I think for us as a church, <clears throat> I think primarily where this passage leads us is how to deal with growing pains. How to deal with growing pains. And not just in a way <clears throat> that's neutral and helps us avoid disaster. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, well, when problems come up, we just want to minimize the damage and just make sure we get out unscathed. That's one way of dealing with issues in the church. But I think what this passage shows us and gives us hope in is that we can deal with issues in the church as they arise, not just neutral, but they can become springboards for becoming a stronger and more effective church. 
Some of you are like, I'll believe it when I see it because a lot of us have belonged to the church for a long time. When problems come up, they're not usually an opportunity for great strength for the church. Sadly, too many churches split when problems arise or there's a, a leader steps down or, or people you know, walk out of the church or something and it's like, is that what the Bible gives us for, our, for hope as to how to deal with problems? No. The Bible gives us, the, at the end of this passage, it says the word of God continued to increase and the people were pleased. There's a great ending to this problem. And so that's why I'm so hopeful as we preach it. Uh, the church had grown rapidly. It had developed a culture of mutual care and provision, which was outlined in chapter 4. So we're not going to go back to that, but basically what was happening is people were selling houses and land, and they were giving it to the apostles, and the apostles were looking out over their congregation of some four or 5,000 people and figuring out who had the greatest need, you know? Who didn't, have a, who didn't have shelter? Who didn't have food for a week? Who was disabled and couldn't work? And so the church was providing for each other's needs in an amazing way, something that I think continues to this day. You know, there, there's form and substance. So we could say, well, we all need to sell our houses, and then that's the form. That's how they chose to do it. The substance is that they took care of each other. So as I said a couple of weeks ago, let's continue to take care of each other. If you want to sell a house or a piece of land, by all means, but that is not the prescriptive requirement of the text. The text is that we would care for each other and love each other. And so this culture had sprung up in the church as a result of the reality that they were no longer their own. When, they, when you're bought with a price, when you belong to Christ, you realize it all belongs to God. And so that's the, that's the rhythm that the church is existing in here. So it's beautiful. It's like, it's like this community caring for each other. And the Bible doesn't let us look at it idealistically, like, oh, the perfect church in Jerusalem. Um, because right here we have problems arising in this very ministry, in this very culture of selfless, caring, providing for everybody, problems arose. Some of the widows were being routinely neglected routinely neglected, which means the same people were being neglected week after week when the distribution went out. So there's a problem. So the apostles rightly assessed the problem. The apostles maintained their priority in the church, which as they said was prayer and preaching. But even as they did that, they appointed men to solve the problem. So it's exciting. So let's look at our text. Uh, my first heading is someone complains. Okay, this is pretty generic for the church, right? Like, people sometimes complain in church, and it's not always a bad thing, and it's not all, this is not a sermon about how to silence complainers, because they brought up a serious issue. They brought up a problem that needed to be addressed. Uh, so someone complains, the first two verses, in the days when the disciples were increasing in number, so the church is growing, that's why I called it growing pains, not just dysfunctional pains, but growing pains, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, so who do we have here? We have the Hellenists and we have the Hebrews. Now, what are we talking about here? I thought that we were all one in Christ. Well, the reality is we are, but some Jews lived outside of Jerusalem. They lived in the neighboring areas around and they spoke actually Greek. Um, Hellenist is, is, a, is pertaining to the Greek language. 
Helene was one of the first words I learned in Greek when I was in university. It pertained to a Greek person. And so it, it might have been tempting for the Hebrew Jews to think of themselves as more pure than the Hellenists because the Hellenist Jews spoke Greek, which is not really God's language, right? We all know Hebrew is God's language. So there's a, you know, there might be a bit of tension here, honestly. There might be a bit of geographic rivalry and tension going on here. It names these two groups right off the start, and it's the Hellenists who complain against the Hebrews. Now, we have to remember that all the disciples, all the apostles, were Hebrews. They were all from within Jerusalem. They all were what you would consider, you know, the, the purest group of Jews. So the church is being led by entirely Hebrew apostles. And the Hellenists come to them and they're saying, look, your people are neglecting our people. And so you kind of have a minority group going to the majority group and saying, you know, we don't like what's happening here. We don't like what's going on. One of my first thoughts, this might be a selfish thought, but it gives me great comfort, is that even the great apostles themselves did not necessarily have the leadership foresight to preclude any problems arising in the church, okay? That brings me great comfort. Because when a problem arises, like, oh, I should have thought of that. How did I not see this coming or whatever? But in their church, the great apostles, you know, there's problems arising even under their great and wise um, oversight. Growth in the church, what I'm saying about that is that growth in the church, now I emphasize the word growth, is always going to be accompanied by growing pains. Now, if your church is not growing, you're still going to have problems. So you might as well be growing and having those problems. That's the way I look at that, right? Growth in the church is always going to be accompanied by growing pains. Wynne has terrible growing pains, and I, you feel bad because it's a good sign she's growing, and you can all see, but it's painful. And so a complaint arose from these dispersion groups, as, uh, Jews, as I said. And uh, so they're from sort of outside, but they've been brought into the church through salvation. And these Palestinian Jews, or these Hebrew Jews, were generally probably, it seems, favoring their own widows over the widows of the dispersion Jews, of the Hellenist Jews. For all the spiritual maturity that probably existed in this church, you had kind of an ethnic favoritism happening at the hands of the leadership okay so this is a serious case to be dealt with by the apostles now this program was obviously wonderful wonderful program right taking care of orphans and widows and i mean uh, paul lays out for timothy the way that you should care for widows in the church in his book but it's a wonderful program they're selling, they're, they're caring for widows, the, the very people who need, you know, who are vulnerable, who, who might not have somebody to provide for them. The church is taking good care of them. But it still needed practical oversight. It still needed practical matters to help it run better than it was. It needed better execution. The program was kind of insulting to one group of people. Wonderful program, but it was causing some to suffer and probably to have bitterness toward the church leadership. And so I think one of the things that I thought about in that was that salvation, being having a new heart and having the Holy Spirit in you, cannot be the only condition for running a great church. These people were all saved, and yet there's this problem arising, and it has to do with the flesh not recognizing the equality of all the widows. So you need 
Now, don't misunderstand me. You don't need more than Christ. You don't need more than salvation. But if you're going to run a church and if you're going to care for people properly, you cannot just rely on the fact that you've, been, you've become a Christian. So I can do no wrong. I'm a Christian now. So whatever I'm doing must be right. It has to go beyond that. It has to go beyond that to execution and practical matters. And you have to steward the ministry that God has given you as a Christian. You have to work at it. You've got to become better. I mean, the best example would be husbands. I mean, isn't it so easy as a Christian husband to say, well, gosh, you know, compare me to so-and-so down the road and I'm, I'm surely better than him and I have the Holy Spirit in me. Doesn't my wife know how lucky she is? Don't, don't. Valentine's Day is coming up, guys. Okay? It takes work. It takes thought, forethought, planning, carefulness, right? To do something well. And so this program needs a bit of an overhaul. It needs some help. Uh, Now, these kind of bumps and problems are natural. They are natural. I mean, one person coined the phrase, well, that, you know, the problem is the church is that there are people in it. That includes me. The church is always occupied with people, and we bring with us to the church a suitcase suitcase full of, you know, preconceptions or, or baggage or sin or whatever it is, and brace yourselves, that's normal. If you're going to be part of this church long term, you're going, to, you're going to bump up against everybody else's suitcases full of their stuff. And we can get through it together. We can deal with it. And so, in this case, it was ethnic, maybe familiarity, and maybe a lack of empathy that was being shown. The, the Hebrew Jews were not taking enough care of the Hellenist Jews. So that one thing that the apostles do get right is that it, they say it's not right for us to give up preaching. It's not, that's not the solution. The solution, they come, to the, they come to the apostles and they say, we have this problem. And, and they say, you know, first, okay, here's where we're going to draw a line. It's not right for us to give up preaching. We know that that's our job. So they maintain that line. But here's the wonderful thing. Knowing their task in the church gives them freedom to pivot and to delegate the problem to other gifted people. That's the beauty of that. Knowing your role in the church is a good thing because it gives you the freedom to delimit what you're about and say, you know, that's a, that's a wonderful thing, but that's not my thing. So I'm going to delegate that to somebody else. Now, the apostles do that. Pastors and preachers do that. But I think you do that as well, don't you? People come and ask you something and it's like, yeah, that fits perfectly with what I need to do or what God's called me to do. Other times it's like, you know, I'd love to help you get that off the ground, but that's, that's not going to be what I do. And so it gives them the freedom to delegate. They appoint others to the task. So a complaint arises, verse 1 and 2. A solution is presented. Now, I thought about two options that could have been employed here, one of which I would have tended to, and, and I like seeing myself in the bad alternatives because it's like, okay, here's something that I can learn because I know what I would have done. So here's the solution. They twelve, they, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching. So what are we going to do? It's not right that we should give up preaching to wait on tables. Therefore, brothers, here's the solution. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So, Two options could have been employed here when a complaint came to the apostles. Here's, here's option number one. Hint, these are both 
bad. These are both not the right doors to walk through. Apostles, option number one could have been, you know, you guys are lucky to belong to Christ in this great thriving church. So go and pray and stop complaining. Don't you guys know how lucky you are to be a part of this amazing church? Like, are you kidding me? Your widows get anything. Like, how were they doing before they came to the church? Okay, this apostle's getting a little heated right now. Like, you know, you can get your back up when a complaint comes and say, don't you know how good you have it? So go away. Like, go back and just, like, fix it. Like, whatever. Don't come to us. Like, you're lucky you're, you're, you know, you belong to Christ now. Like, don't you have the joy of the Spirit? Don't you have the joy of salvation? Okay, that's option number one. That's a bad move. So they don't do that. Thank you. No, option number two, and this is what I would have done. Shame on me. I would have thought, I knew we shouldn't have bothered with this program. I knew, I knew it. I knew problems were going to come up. Uh, let's fold it, and then we'll hear no more complaining about it. That's what I would have done. Okay, in my selfish, like, I'm kind of a no guy. Like, let's just not, let's not do things because they'll create problems. So let's fold the program. Like, I knew, okay, it's going off the rails. It's not working. Let's fold it. Um, those are both not acceptable solutions. They're both not acceptable solutions for a mature, caring shepherd of God's flock. Okay, neither of those solutions are shepherding the people who came to them. Their job is oversight and shepherding, right? To take care of the people. So what are they going to do? A, a basic solution is presented. I love how basic it is. Don't overcomplicate it. Since the Hellenists notice the problem, they are chosen to be part of the solution. And so seven are chosen to take specific care of this lapse in distribution. I love that. Basically, the apostles are like, yeah, you're right. There is a problem. So we think that you can be part of the solution. So we're going to appoint you. We're going to empower you as leaders to take care of this issue. You guys are going to go make sure that your, that your widows are getting fed. Now, this is not saying like, oh, they're Hellenists. They're not our problem. The Hebrews are not saying, okay, well, just get the Hellenist guys to do it because like they're not our issue. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that these are the people who came to them. They obviously have a passion for this part of the ministry, don't they? They obviously care about it. And so all the stuff that you see happening at Evergreen Chapel is because, mostly, people are doing it because it's what they're passionate about. Now, our kids' ministry needs more leaders than we have passionate, necessarily, you know, kids' workers. But people throw themselves into it. But the point is, people do what they are passionate about. And they serve with all their hearts when they are passionate and in tune with that part of the ministry. I think that's a profound, instructive point to the church. Why would you ask people who are already struggling to do that to go fill that ministry role when these Hellenists are there and they're like, we see a problem. And so the apostles say to them, then you're the perfect people to fix it. You're the perfect people to step in and make that right. And I love that because the, the apostles avoid two errors here. So there's two solutions that they did not choose. They also avoid two errors in creating the solution. First error would have been frantically trying to keep them happy by fixing it themselves. 
Now, probably most of you are like, well, Tim's never guilty of that. <laughs> like, you know, trying to keep people happy and do stuff. But it would have caused them to abandon their role in the church. It would have caused them to step away and create another problem where they left out. So they don't frantically respond and say, oh yeah, you're right, we don't want to lose the Hellenists, let's go make sure. They say, okay, just calm down. We're going to appoint people. We're going to delegate this task. So number one, they avoid being frantic. Number two, they avoid spiritualizing it, which I think sometimes we're guilty of in the church, which is to say, oh, you know what? Everything is going to work out. Just go, just keep trying to love those people. You know, just, just keep praying for them, keep loving them, and hopefully it'll work out. And, and that's what I would call over-spiritualizing a problem. When there's a problem in front of you, and there's a practical way to fix it, and you say something to the effect of, don't do anything except change your heart, you're over-spiritualizing it. That's not the will of Christ. That's not the will for his church. He gave us brains to problem-solve and deal with issues. And sometimes theologians and pastors can be the worst at over-spiritualizing it because we're all about the heart. We're all about where's your heart at? Where's your heart? Is your heart close to Christ? Is your heart? Are you asking for the right reasons? You know, we want to look at motive. Why are the Hellenists coming to us with this complaint? Is there something deeper that we need to address in them? Like maybe they're discontent or maybe this or that. Maybe they're micromanagers. Maybe we just need to pray for them because they have spiritual issues. That's called over-spiritualizing it. And if I'm, if I'm ever guilty of that in you, please just call me out. Please forgive me if I have done that with you. If I have over-spiritualized a problem that you have brought to me by saying, you know, maybe it's just an issue in your heart or maybe please forgive me for that because that's, they avoid that error here and I love it. They don't over-spiritualize, which is something that, again, as I said, I think maybe people like me or me would tend to do. And here's why. Church life consists in the practical things of life. Church life is built upon the practical things that we do together. Now, I don't mean that instead of Christ. We are all here because, again, as Bob said, Christ has made us his own. That's the foundation of Christian life. But living together, being a church together, consists in the practical things of life. Eating, drinking, cleaning up babysitting, playing, campfires. campfires. You cannot wait till that campfire season starts, Dustin. You missed a good one yesterday. So that's the reality. These people are eating together. They're sharing their goods. They're selling their houses. I mean, the Christian faith, the church, being a part of the local church is going to radically affect the very practical matters of your life. And I also love that because it doesn't diminish the realities that we live together every day. You know, when it comes to helping somebody clean their house or taking care of somebody's kids, you know, while they go away on a retreat to Quebec or whatever it is, right? Church life consists in those very practical matters very often. And I love this because the task is not diminished. The task is not minimized by the apostles because the apostles could have said, it's not right for us to leave the preaching and teaching because that's the spiritual job. And then you just get some people who you know, know where the bathroom is to take care of the widows. No, they say choose men who have good reputations 
and who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And I love that because every, every person who serves in Christ's church ought to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Spiritual gifting is not necessarily always teaching prophecy or even necessarily special faith. Did you know that some people are given the gift of faith? Well, don't we all have faith? Yes, but some people's spiritual gift is faith. They just, they just believe stuff that other people don't believe. You know, they walk out in faith. Many people in the church who will serve and who will honor Christ will not possess any flashy spiritual gift. And yet what they do is so important to Christ because the apostles say, choose men that are filled with the Holy Spirit because we want those widows to get a plate of food from somebody who is filled with the Holy Spirit, who's a God-fearing, submitted, humble person. So for many of us, the work in the church is plain and it's ordinary, but it's done to the glory of Jesus Christ in the church and as a witness to salvation and to new life and to Jesus Christ's lordship. Many of the things that we do, though very ordinary, witness to the lordship of Christ. Did you know that? So don't elevate. I mean, I'm, I'm going to make a point about the priority of preaching in a moment, but don't elevate one person's spiritual gift above another. Paul addresses this in one of his books where he says, does the eye say to the foot, I have no need for you? Or does the ear say to the hand, I don't need you? Every body part is just working together to glorify Christ. And so don't elevate somebody because their gift causes them to be in front of people, like what I do. A lot of my spiritual gift has me in front of people. Do not elevate that gift over your gift because the church could not function without you, without what you bring, without what God has gifted you to do in the church. It's very important. And the elders, uh, they make a point of that. Choose spirit-filled men from among you. Those who are passionate about that ministry, make sure they're spirit-filled and then get them to do it. That's so great. And so I'll make a more mm, ecclesiastical point here, which is that many theologians believe that this is probably, though it's not stated, this is probably the first sign of deacons in the church. Like, oh, here we go into, you know, Bible talk. But... Deacons is a very important role, as, as I've been saying. It's kind of a sister office to the office of the elder. In 1 Timothy, Paul talks about appointing elders and deacons as separate groups of people. So if I can briefly describe what those two things are, and maybe it'll help you sort of understand why they're important. An elder is charged with oversight, overseeing the church and how things are working, teaching, <coughs> preaching, shepherding, church discipline, okay, the things that kind of connect people with God's word and where they're going, that's an elder's responsibility. Deacons are, are in charge of what you would consider maybe more practical matters, although that doesn't mean theology and teaching is not practical, but it means sort of things like finances, food, as, we, or as we're seeing in this text, scheduling, activity planning, uh, communications, like how do we do communications? We have an Instagram account and Facebook and those are matters that the church needs to do well. They need to be performed by people who are full of the Spirit, who love Jesus Christ and who love the church. And so just showing you that there's kind of two types of leaders 
in the church. And the elders do a perfect job at saying, that, doesn't, that task doesn't fall under what we're called to do, and so we're going to give that job to some deacons. Why don't we appoint some deacons? They're both very important. But the apostles' commitment to preaching does tell us one critical thing, that a healthy, a healthy Christian community is a derivative of biblical teaching, not the other way around. What I mean by that, the word derivative, I didn't have any other word, but essentially it's that from the preaching of God's word flows, from the preaching of God's word flows everything else in a church. And again, I don't say that because that's my gift, but because I believe that's what the Bible says. If you invert that and say, we're going to build our community on our commitment to you know, feeding or activities or whatever, and say, this is the lifeblood of the Christian church, and, you know, we may or may not get to God's word. But at least we're all Christians, and we're all hanging out together, and this is the important stuff. The apostles, are, what they're saying to us, what they're signaling is that this community will fall apart without God's word. There won't be any widows to feed if God's word is not maintained as a priority. The one complaint that they're receiving will become the norm for this community if it is not saturated and steeped in the hearing and believing of God's word. Because again, these guys are prioritizing preaching and there's still some neglect happening and there's some problems happening. Imagine the apostles abandon God's word. How much worse is that going to get? You think the community is going to become stronger and better at serving each other? I don't think so. Because it's God's word that continually corrects us and searches us and causes us to repent and causes us to be humble and, drink, and brings us back to the church with new life and with new energy. Sometimes there is a temptation to elevate the practical matters, although they are important. Don't hear me say that they're not important. But they want to elevate those things as the bedrock of what the church is what I believe is that without God's word, those things will either fold or they will be powerless to transform people. They'll be powerless to transform people. So that's their solution. They say we have a priority for preaching. We're going to do that. We're going to delegate this to some godly, spirit-filled people. We're going to take care of those elders and we're going to move forward. Now, what is the outcome of dealing with this complaint? Heading number three is that the church is blessed. The church is blessed. Verses five and seven. And when they said this, it pleased the whole gathering. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And they, they, they mark him first because he's actually very also gifted in preaching, which is kind of cool. He preaches this huge sermon coming up in a couple weeks. Um, and we're going to take our time through that. But Stephen is marked first as one of the seven who are chosen. And then they go through these names. And these names are all Greek names. Which means that the men that they chose were from among the community that was struggling most with the distribution program. So they chose some of the Hellenist Jews to take care of the Hellenist widows. And it pleased the whole church. Everyone was pleased. Isn't that an amazing outcome of godly oversight? It's not to avoid problems or sweep them under the rug. It's to deal with them publicly in a way that demonstrates to the church that this is possible to live together. I mean, how easily would it have been for the Hellenist Jews to be like, we don't need you Hebrew apostles. We're going to go start our own church. Like, 
we'll just be the Hellenist Jew church. That's fine, right? The church could have easily split there, but the whole church was pleased. And that's very encouraging for us. And I believe that that's because when the right people are chosen according to their spiritual maturity and their passion, it's pleasing for the church. You can rejoice when you see somebody doing what God has called them to do and you see how it blesses the church, right? So that gives, it pleases me when I see people living out their spiritual calling inside the church. Where there was once a complaining minority group in the church, they have now been appointed to leadership through this bold solution. And it pleased them. People can make a difference in the health of the church when they see a need and when they receive blessing from those who are overseers. Another important part of this is to say, well, they could have just gone ahead and fixed it, right? But they did go to the apostles. They went to the leadership in the church and they said, can you help us fix this problem? And I think that's where the joy is. When there's a, when there's a proper process to it, it's pleasing and it's godly. And so if you see a need and you want to go ahead and take care of it, that's great. But just make sure it's done through a process of oversight so that the whole church can be a part of that in rejoicing in that uh, need being met. So what's the end game? The end game is that the church becomes more effective in its mission. Why do I say that? So they prayed for these guys. They commissioned them. I love it. They laid their hands on them and prayed for them to put food out on tables. So cool. Because every part of what we do exudes the ministry of Jesus Christ. So whether you count offering after Sunday here at Evergreen Chapel, whether you sweep up after the kids, whether you're rolling up a carpet, whether you're filling a cup of coffee, may you do it in the Lordship of Christ, giving Him glory so that everything that we do would be for His glory. There is nothing insignificant about what we do together. That was a side note. So they pray for them, they commission them. But then what happens? The Word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So what's the end game here? They have a problem internally in the church, and because of the way they deal with it, the church multiplies and grows. Remember after Ananias and Sapphira were, were judged and killed? The church grows. What, God, what, what, what is done rightly in God's church will cause God's church to grow. So the word of God was increasing. Why? Because the apostles did not abandon their job. They maintained that preaching and teaching was priority for the church. But even in the way they feed and delegate things is going to be cause for a church to grow. So the way we handle our practical matters is going to be effective for this church growing. Whatever job you do around Evergreen Chapel or whether you want to get into doing jobs, it will be effective for the growth of this church, spiritually and numerically. Some people think like, well, you know, maybe it's Tim's job to go win people into the church or like he does the spiritual work and then we just make sure it all runs well. But actually, when you do your job under Christ with excellence in a spirit-filled way, you are causing the church to grow. You are freeing the church to grow well. That's really exciting. I love that it says that the, a great number of priests were converted. Why priests? This was in Jerusalem near the temple, right? Because in the Old Testament, the priests were very often concerned with the well-being of people. They, their priestly function was to care for people, to sympathize with people. 
And so when the priests, who were already thinking that way, saw the church taking care of each other so well, it caused them to join the church and come to faith in Christ. Did you hear that? Someone might see the way that you take care of money. Someone might see the way that you invite people to your house. And because of the way they were brought up or because of something in them, they may say God is in that. They may join the church because of the way you feed somebody. That's amazing. Now that's a bit of speculation, but I think that's why it says that priests were converted after this issue of food was taken care of well. Now, we, got, we have lofty dreams here. We, we want to see Smith Falls transformed by faith in Jesus Christ, right? But we cannot hold out our lofty dreams without paying attention to how the church actually functions. This is why we look at passages like this, and they're so instructive for us. Good works, which is this feeding, they are a witness to Christ. But the preaching of God's word awakens the heart to receive that king. Do you see how that works? Our good works witness to the reality of God and, and Jesus Christ. But it's when people hear the word of God and they hear the message of salvation that they are converted and they belong to Christ through faith. So the church thrives. The church is very pleased. And so I just want to conclude with just a couple points. Um, good oversight in a church, again, does not preclude conflict but it demands faithful oversight. The difference in that being that issues are handled well rather than that issues just never arise, right? Don't think that this church is broken just because issues might come up. It's part of what a healthy church does is to grow through those things. Uh, number two, growing pains are much better to have than to be in a system which is so undisturbed that it functions perpetually like a Swiss watch. Now, you know, we had a, uh, we had a kids' curriculum and a space here for the number of kids that we had a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago now, we started a kids' ministry. And it worked perfectly for five or six kids. And our, our kids' ministry needs help. Like, we need, we need, we need to like figure things out because it's growing. And Sonia and Mikhail have been praying a lot about curriculum and about how to, you know, we saw the, the video at, at our Christmas service, like the way they serve and the way are, they are handling this growing group, it's not necessarily always perfect. It's not, it's not ideal. It's not like, oh, we got the perfect youth room up there in the mezzanine of this theater. But that's good. I would rather be in that than have the same six kids and a perfectly running kids ministry where the system is just undisturbed by new people. Oh boy, our, it's just well-oiled, right? I would rather see things constantly need attention, although it's exhausting. So growing pains are good. It's good. It's a sign of life. So I want to ask you, has God given you a passion or a gift with, that seems to fit in with something here at Evergreen Chapel? If you don't see it, it doesn't mean God's telling you to leave this church. But I'm asking you, do you see, do you have a passion? Do you, do you feel something that God is calling you into and to do? Then by all means, come forward and make that a part of your life here at the church. And again, I am not always the greatest steward of people and the greatest equipper of people. 
my job as an elder is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It's not my job to be the sum to- totality of the ministry. Ministry is not just preaching. Ministry is not just the hour and a quarter that we meet here. Ministry is the totality of what all God's people do together. 